everyone. Welcome back to Everyone Talks to Liz. Okay, just like we know money doesn't grow on trees, success does not happen overnight. Now you're saying, yeah, yeah, Liz, we know it's not a sprint, but it's a marathon. Okay, where there is no end in sight, that kind of marathon, you come up against hills and roadblocks, but if you keep holding on and pushing forward, you will reach a beautiful destination. But seriously, you're asking me, Liz, how many steps does it have to take? Well, to make it to CEO of a $37 billion division at AT&T, my next podcast guest got there by doing three degrees, three degrees in college before arriving at AT&T. And once there went, not necessarily in this order, from engineering to marketing, to sales, to customer care, to international operations, to product management, to strategic planning, (gasps) before becoming a -a one-of-a-kind top boss at AT&T. The first woman of color, by the way, to run an entire business at the telecom, that really only scratches the surface of how Ann Chow got there. Welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz, and this I've got to hear. I mean, you have an incredible story. Welcome. Oh, my gosh. Thanks so much, Liz, for having me, and I am honored to be part of that everyone who gets to talk to Liz. I'm thrilled to be here with you. <laughs> I can't believe we haven't spoken before now, but as soon as we heard about you and my producer, Tanya Joseph, we said, we, we got to get in on because you fit this exact, well, not mold, because nobody fits a mold, but you break the mold. That's the mold you fit in that all that you have done. And I wanted I wanted our listeners, because we have this unbelievable core of listeners who have now become obsessed with this podcast. It's so inspirational. But you know how when techie websites get a hold of the newest iPhone or the newest Microsoft laptop and they, they pull it apart, they literally yank it apart to see what's yeah. inside, yeah. a teardown. Yeah. I want to do a teardown of you, Anne, because I need to know what you're made of. Okay. How you reach the success. But before all of that, do you already have the new iPhone 12? Uh, it is uh, It is in route. I've got it uh, very, 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 very soon. So by the time this airs, I'm sure. And by the way, I want to say that I'm hopeful that you are going to just figuratively tear me down, not actually literally tear me down. Okay? So I, I look forward to it. I look forward to it. Yeah, we're going to tear you down so that we can see what you're made of and what parts were added on and how you grew those parts, you know, and I want to begin with, with basically where you grew up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, like many people, my story, of course, starts with my parents. So my parents are immigrants to the United States. They came here in the 1960s from Taiwan, and they came with less than $500 US to their name. And what's kind of ironic is that they met through a matchmaker, which is fairly common in their culture and during their time. And my mom said to my dad, I'll only marry you if you go to the United States. And the reason why she said that is that they knew, my parents knew even back then, that America was the land where dreams were made and it is the land where hope lives. And that is the foundation of my upbringing. So I'm a second generation American, a proud second generation American. I was born here. I was born in the Midwest, which is where my dad went to grad school. Um, And relatively early on in my life, um, I, we moved to New Jersey because my father, like every good engineer in the globe uh, at the time, wound up working at Bell Laboratories. So the very, very famous Bell Laboratories. I am a Jersey girl 
through and through. So that may tell you a little <laughs> bit about my muster. So even though I do live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area now, I am Jersey all the way, uh, all the way through. You know, I had a really typical immigrant upbringing. I mean, we didn't have a lot growing up. You know, my mother made many of our clothes. Um, I was heavily bullied and discriminated against. I and mean, it's not like there were a ton of Asian people in the town that we lived in, in the, in the seventies and, uh, you know, into the uh, early eighties. But my parents really taught me that education was the great equalizer, hence the degrees, by the way, because they poured everything into my brother and I around education, um, around resilience, around the importance of giving back. And one of the things that I reflect back on is that you know they've always had this immigrant paranoia um, that hey anything could be taken away from you at any moment right and so that just builds this sort of fortitude in making sure that you always have a plan and so there's just a little bit about uh, a little bit about my upbringing and where where uh, and how I grew up. I love it, um, but you know you so you're a Jersey girl, so you like the subs. You like uh, what else? Uh, Bruce Springsteen. The, the bagels. The bagels. The pizza. <laughs> I, I love going down the shore, Liz. I love going down the shore. You didn't ask hey. me what exit, but that's because you're not from Jersey. Although you live there, I believe now, right? I do. I do. And I'm on the second exit. The second exit. Exit two. I'm, I'm looking at Manhattan. So I didn't go as deep <laughs> south as you did, girlfriend. That's amazing. <laughs> now, part of the immigrant spirit, especially in the Asian culture, because, yeah, I read the whole battle hymn of the tiger mom story yep. about the piano and all of that is a musical instrument and you did take up the piano but you didn't just take it up you took it down i mean you got accepted to juilliard yeah pre-college juilliard how'd you get on their radar yeah so my my parents again right with, with with my folks they always drilled into me hey you don't have to be the best but you have to be your best and then see where your best takes you right and when you think about it most of us in our lives, our best may not always be the best. In fact, if you're an athlete or if you're a musician or whatnot, you're, you're rarely the best, right? But if you're doing your best, um, then, then really the sky's the limit, right? You're realizing your fullest potential. And so early on, I would say in elementary school is when it kind of occurred to them that, you know, I was a little bit better than good, right? Uh, not, not, not great, but a little bit better than good. And so they had me audition um, at a couple of music schools, Manhattan and Juilliard, uh, uh, to name two. And so I entered the, I enrolled in the Juilliard School of Music when I was 10 and went for seven years straight all the way through high school uh, before college. And so uh, it was quite an experience. I would say that it heavily, heavily shaped um, who I am today because, you know, discipline. it's all about practice, right? Yeah, yeah it's discipline. It's practice. Uh, by the way, that's one of the reasons why I do not play golf. So this is very atypical. For a CEO, you know, of a large unit or of a Fortune 100 company, I do not play golf because it is one of the only things that I have observed that practice does not make perfect. So <laughs> I have no interest in it whatsoever, although I love watching my clients play golf. I love watching people who love golf watch golf, but I do not play. So. Oh, I, I couldn't. You know, I am one of these immediate, give it to me, it's got to be done. I have to see immediate results and nine holes of a golf course, you know, 18 holes, shoot me. I just don't want to deal with it. It, I, it could fit a million things into those hours yeah. on a golf course, but I get it. It yeah. is addictive, but, um, you know, Cornell, three yeah. degrees. You got a bachelor of science, master's in electrical engineering and an MBA. Yeah. What led you to AT&T after all that? 
Yeah. So I was fortunate enough in high school, actually, when I knew that I didn't want to major in music, because there was a point in my young, uh, young life that I had a dream to perform in Carnegie Hall. And then I realized once I hit high school that I was good, but I was not great. You know, in my peak, I was practicing Liz six hours a day. So when you think about that for a kid, you know, you wake up, you practice, you go to school, you come home, you practice, you maybe you have an activity because I did sports too. You practice, you do homework, you practice, right? And when I saw what the kids and students in college level were doing, they were practicing 12 hours a day. I knew that I did not have that in me. And so, of course, what did I do? I wanted to follow my father's footsteps. So in high school, I started um, applying for technical roles, you know, as, as sort of internships as a high school student. Um, and I was fortunate enough to have a couple of pretty technical uh, technical roles uh, growing up in high school, which had me realizing that while I liked engineering and I wanted to be in technology, I knew that there had to be a people element in there, right? Because I had a couple of you know, research experiences early on. So I knew there was more to it than just the technical degree. You know, when I look back and I think about why did I pick electrical engineering, you know, there wasn't really much to it outside of I was good at math, I was good at science, my father was electrical engineer. So hey, you know, I looked at the scale of hey, what do people make when they graduate from college? You know, I want to become financially independent and not be a burden to mm -hmm. my parents. And so I chose um, electrical engineering. And fortunately, at Cornell, and I didn't know this going in, um, Cornell had a six year program where you could get all those degrees in six years, you just had to have a clue that that's sort of what you wanted to do, right? Because mm -hmm. every class yeah. you take. Yeah. Yeah. Every class you take has to work towards one of those majors. Um, and so I found that program relatively early on and it helped set me on this amazing path I, that I'm on today. Cause it just, you know, it, it, it had me being educated at the intersection of, you know, technology, science, math, and people, right. And people and business. I'm so, so getting that from your personality about being a people person, engineering mm -hmm. is not exactly that. And I mean, I know you wanted yeah. to transition from engineering to sales at AT&T and, and marketing, uh, but you came up against a preconceived notion that today actually has a name, unconscious bias. In the That's 80s right. and 90s in corporate America, what a lot of CEOs said was, oh, Asian Asians work in IT, not sales. Yeah. How did you bash down that wall? Yeah, it's uh, Liz. Thanks for bringing that up. You know, unconscious bias is a passion topic of mine, and you know, thirty years into my career now, at the uh, you know wise old age of you know fifty something, um, you know, but I look back on it, and I fundamentally believe back then and even today that unconscious bias is at the root of most strife in this world. So let me answer your question uh, first at the outright. So early on in my career. Um, I knew that I wanted to go into management because right? I had this I had this desire. I knew I, you know, I, I love being a network architect and I love being in a technical company, but I wanted more. Several of my mentors told me, hey, you've got to go into sales. Now, Liz, I would say that bias sits on multiple sides because I had no clue what sales even was. It's not like a second generation Asian American was raised to go be a salesperson to this day. Uh, this is a little tongue in cheek, but it's actually true. You know, I spent half of my career in sales. My mother still doesn't know what it is. She asked me if my job is secure because she's worried or she has a bias as to what a salesperson is. Uh, but, you know, I, I wanted to get into it because I was sort of told that's a little bit of sort of my cultural background. Um, and I was rejected over and over and over again. You know, the rejections came. Uh, some of them were valid. Some of them were biased. Some of them were like, hey, you've never been in front of a customer before. Okay, peace. It's true. 
All right, I got to go get a customer-facing job. Another one of the, the barriers was, hey, you've never managed a group of people before, so how are you going to motivate salespeople? Okay, peace, that's true. You know, another one of them was, hey, you've never been there before, so therefore you cannot do it. That's a clear bias that says, you know, what, what, what makes you think that because I've never done it before that I can't, right? And so five times, Liz, I was rejected over a period of four years, and uh, you know, I, it took a much more indirect route to go get that sales job, but I'm so thankful that that sixth person um, agreed to take me in because I fell in love with the profession. And I would tell you that that was one of the major pivotal points in my career because, I mean, like like you pointed out, what you know, what Asian female, Asian person is leading a sales organization or you know in charge of customer relationships or in charge of revenue generation. There's still to this day in the year 2020, there's not that many of us, right? And it, you know, it's just it doesn't make any sense, quite honestly. You know, Magic Johnson. Mm. Well, after he was Magic Johnson and had retired from the actual basketball court, had started this business and he wanted to get a business loan. He wanted to do the movie theater in a very African American neighborhood. He was rejected by 19 banks, mm-hmm. okay? He just, as Magic Johnson, couldn't get that break. But again, the 20th, or, uh, you know, my numbers may be wrong, WD-40, that yeah. stuff you spray in your door, guess what the yeah. 40 stands for? Yeah. Water displacement, 40th attempt. You yeah. can't give up at five. You can't no. give up at 17, 36, 40th. Thank God they didn't give up. Because the 40th attempt, okay, but that's got to be incredibly frustrating because, uh, call me crazy, Anne, but everybody who's in a position that they are today at one point had never done it before and got a shot. It just seems like men are more willing, it's not to beat up on men, I love men, absolutely, (laughs) but men in management positions are more willing to give guys a chance at a never done it before situation than they are with women. And then you're dealing with your cultural aspect as well. Yes. How you didn't give up at that point out of frustration, you got to tell us. Yeah. So I I think it has a lot to do with that. um, You referenced that book by Amy Chua, The Tiger Mom, right? And I was, in fact, raised by a tiger mom. I happen (laughs) to have two daughters. I happen to have two daughters who are in college now. And I have to say I sort of resemble a tiger mom, not entirely, but I have attributes of that in me. And what I would tell you is that the, the, one of the fundamental lessons from my parents, and it wasn't like an overt lesson. I look back on it and I say, this was just kind of uh, part of how they raised me was just this notion of grit, right? And I'm a big fan of uh, the, the book, The Ted Talks by Angela Duckworth, who by the way, happens to be another Chinese girl from New Jersey. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, um, you know, it's a it's it's, uh, you know, got uh, her her research and her data um, you know, has shown that this is actually the most common attribute. What is the most single attribute that people who are successful have? And it is grit. Right. It is this combination of passion and perseverance and resilience. I look back at my parents and they came to this country with nothing. They didn't know the language. They had nothing. So for me, anytime I faced a certain amount of risk. I always reflect back on my parents and the risks they took to get us to where we were as a family and are as a family and everything else pales in comparison, you know? And so for me, I have a very high risk tolerance. I have a very high threshold for 
honestly, I, Liz, I don't believe in failure. I, I don't believe you do either. I mean, you're immensely successful, right? And have been a trailblazer as well um, in your field. And there is no such thing as failure, right? Failure mm-hmm. is just simply learning on the pathway to success. And so there's yeah. only two outcomes. There's success and there's learning. And that's what your whole life is about. And so I, I actually revel in proving people wrong. If I reflect back on all the people who told me throughout my life that I couldn't do something or I was terrible or something or whatnot, I, I mean, if I listened to them, I absolutely would mm-hmm. not be here. But I love the I, I love a little bit of the, yeah, I kind of told you so, right? I'm yeah. going to prove you wrong. I'm going to prove that I can be the first or, you know, I can do that because you think I can't, right? And there's a little bit of that competitive nature in me, I would say. Oh, uh, I always say the worst thing you can say to somebody if you really don't want them to succeed is you'll never make it. You just don't have it in you because yes. hopefully that triggers what triggered you what triggered people like me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would say that Dave Ramsey, who's a famous radio guy, he talks about failure and he says, what is success? Success is nothing more than standing atop a mountain of failures. So true. Just keep climbing and you just keep doing that. But, you know, the fact that your parents guided you to the education aspect and getting all of those degrees, you know, I'm just interested to know at a time when college grads across America are saddled with so much debt that takes decades to pay off, as someone like you who's in a position to hire, where do you stand today on job applicants who could not afford the traditional route you took of, of PhD, I joke, piling it higher and deeper, and yet they show real potential? Yeah. How do you look at an applicant like that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we look at applicants and I look at applicants um, really holistically, right? I think there's always a, there's always a story to tell. You know, I I was very very fortunate to go to college on a full ride scholarship, right? My parents, you know, would, I, I would have gone into a massive amounts of debt had it not been for scholarships, right? And so um, so we look holistically. It's not just about the grade point average. It's not just about you know the major that somebody has, but it's about their entire portfolio. You know, the video interviews are so important. You know, the ability to connect with somebody to see if they, you know, if, if they've got sort of the characteristics, if they've got the desire, if they have the fire in the belly to want to come into a company, whether it's on an internship or on a, you know, on a, on a permanent job. Um, you know, one of the things that I, that I will give a shout out to AT&T on, you know, this summer when COVID hit, there were tens of thousands of people all around the country, all around the world who lost their internships, right? Many, many students. We actually put forth an externship program that, uh, that you could sign up for. In fact, it's sold out, if you will, there were 45,000 students all around the world who signed up for this. And it was a free program. You could come in and listen to, I actually had a chance to speak on it. Um, and you could listen to you know, great external speakers, learn about our business, learn about um, you know, many different types of businesses. And we provided a certificate for anyone who went through that externship program. So we fundamentally believe, and I fundamentally believe, whether it's uh, you know, myself as a leader or AT&T as a company, that learning and you know, wisdom and experience comes in all different kinds of flavors. And I think this is much more so true, um, especially with tech companies these days, right? You don't have to have a computer science degree to know how to code, right? Absolutely. Right? You don't have to have a degree or a certificate in sales to know how to sell, right? But you do have to have an aptitude for learning. You do have to have curiosity. 
You do have to have integrity, right? The ability to communicate, the ability to collaborate. And so these are some of the things that we look for in candidates of, um, you know, whether they're entry-level candidates, uh, internship candidates, or even mid-career candidates for that matter. This is Everyone Talks to Liz, and we'll be right back. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clayman. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clayman right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clayman. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You just talked about uh, coming in different flavors. Uh, You know, today, corporate America has come to understand that it is time to admit entire groups in the population who have up until pretty recently been underrepresented. And now you've written a book to democratize your message so everybody can read it. It's called The Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias. It's co-authored by Pamela Fuller and Mark Murphy. Mm -hmm. And in it, you talk about reframing bias cultivating connections, and creating high-performing teams. What does that mean, reframing bias? Yeah, so one of the biggest takeaways about this book, and one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about this topic, is this belief that, you know, Liz, you heard me say a little bit earlier that I believe that bias, really unconscious bias, sits at the root of uh, much strife in the world, right? Whether it's political strife, religious strife, um, you know, co-worker strife, a family strife, right? Uh, you know, strife in the church or community or whatnot. And so this topic of unconscious bias, I believe, is one of the most important topics we have facing us as a society today. Why? Because every one of us has bias, okay? To have bias is to be human. To be human is to have bias. And I think this is one of those topics where it's been sort of taboo, right? It's sort of been taboo. It's been kind of uncomfortable. Nobody's really addressed it in this way. And so what Pamela, myself, and Mark um, you know, strive to do in this book is really demystify bias, ex- explain it, and then also, very importantly, give tools to help each of us work through it as individuals, but also tools for us to help those around us, whether it's the people we work with, the people that work for us. I mean, it really um, can be used in many different contexts. I mean, this whole idea of bias, bias comes from how we were raised, Mm -hmm. where we went to school, who we hang out with, what media we watch and listen to, right? So bias just, you know, bias is, again, a natural part of the human condition. We are aware of some of our biases, Mm -hmm. but that the biases, which are extremely um, you know, uh, sensitive that we have to watch out for are those which sit under the surface. Because if they sit under the surface and we don't bring them forth, if we don't reframe them, they will fester and they will sit there and they have the risk of negatively impacting our outcomes and our relationships. Okay, but what role, because parents obviously pay a role, yes. how were you raised? Yes. What role... And this is a this is a tough subject. Do yeah. do the government and corporations have in 
shining a very harsh spotlight on this and to end discriminatory practices. You know, uh, just as businesses were waking up to why it's actually good business. I mean, strife is crucial. We want to get rid of that. But let's just talk about losses on the bottom line when you when you discriminate, when you don't promote people due to unconscious bias. In a way, what you ran into, well, Asians aren't really great at sales. They're really good at engineering. But just as businesses were kind of getting on board with this as to why it's good business to, to change the prism through which they've looked at minorities for so long, President Trump and his administration just issued an executive order on September 22nd prohibiting federal agencies and, and companies with federal contracts, et cetera, from participating in training that, quote, promotes race or sex stereotyping or scapegoating, okay? And the president called diversity training racist and un-American. That caused a lot of confusion because a lot of companies were putting processes into place, just as the government said, stand, stand down for the moment. Mm-hmm. Well, I would tell you that my, my lens on bias and why diversity, equity, and inclusion are important. You're absolutely right, Liz. I mean, it is, it is good business. It makes common sense. You know, you, you used the word a moment ago in terms of minority, right? Mm-hmm. When you look at the demographics of this country, right? And let, let's just even take a bigger step back. Um, We are, you know, we're Americans, right? I shared with you, I'm a second generation American. And unless you're in that less than 2% of indigenous people or Native American, all of us have immigrant in our backgrounds, right? Mm -hmm. So what has made our country who we are is this beautiful diversity of mosaic of people of all different shapes, sizes, colors, cultural backgrounds, ethnicities. And that has what has sparked the innovation, right, and the inclusion and this land of hope that I shared with you in the very beginning of our our talk here that my parents came here for is that this is a place where where you came from doesn't at all dictate where you can go and what you can contribute. But isn't it odd, Anne, that with so many Americans coming from different backgrounds, whether it be Asian, African-American, Hispanic, they're now very much the majority in these big metropolises, and yet the White House sends down this directive Um, The Wall Street Journal put it like this, perhaps his, meaning the president's, perhaps his perception is that his base is skeptical about the national reckoning over racism. So, and if you had the president's ear and you were speaking to him as an American business leader, Mm -hmm. what would you say? Well, here's what I would say to anyone, and I will share it with you, right? And our our, uh, podcast listeners here, which is, what has made America who we are um, and our role in the global economy has been at the root of it, our diversity. It has been our approach to inclusion. It has been our approach to, um, you know, to equality. That's, that's who, you know, it's we, the people. It's not we, some of the people, or we only people who look like this, or it's not we part of the people, right? And this, this idea of diversity, this is where Liz, unconscious bias comes in so importantly. Um, bias exists on multiple different levels. It's not just simply a racial or a cultural ethnic uh, thing. And just as an aside, a little personal pet peeve of mine, this may not be a popular statement, but a little pet peeve of mine is that we actually call it um, race, right? We're actually all part of the human race. We have Mm -hmm. different ethnicities and we have different cultures, but we are actually part of the same race, right? And, um, you know, I I happen to be um, married to a Caucasian gentlemen. And, you know, one of the worries that I had when, uh, when we knew we were going to have kids was just this notion of their, you know, being called interracial, 
right? Or, you know, being called mixed or mixed up kids, right? When ult ultimately what they are, they're multicultural. And how wonderful is that? Because as you just pointed out, Liz, the minority will be the majority as it relates to uh, this racial or ethnic definition, right? By the year 2050, 2060, there's, it, it varies depending on the report that you look at. Women of color will represent the majority of women in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. And so that is a really powerful statement when you think about um, them as a customer base, uh, them as a, uh, you know, them, them as a um, workforce, right? Mm -hmm. And the demographics that you've got to embrace in order to compete, you know, in the 21st century. When you look at the hardcore data, there's no question that companies that have more diverse boards, more diverse populations, they're more innovative, they generate more EBITDA, right? And I love Warren, I think it was Warren Buffett who said, uh, you know, in response to um, how successful he is, right? He's the one who says, well, no matter, you know, it was easy to be successful because I'm only competing against half the population, right? And exactly, so, yeah. Right, yeah. Right? Well, the ROI, the return on investment yes. when you have a more diverse organization, but let me, let me play a little bit of a devil's advocate here sure. because I know some listeners are listening sure. to your story. Yes. Now, diversity advocate Verna Myers says diversity is being invited to the party. Inclusion is being asked to dance. But Anne, you found a way to be included through persistence and that, that fight, that refusal to give up. Why isn't that enough? Um, it's not enough because it cannot be up to the own individual to be able to um, make progress. You know, I, Liz, I take it a step further and I say every leader in society today has responsibility to build a culture of belonging. So if you take that analogy that those of us in the DEI community love to use, mm -hmm. you know, uh, diversity is being asked to the party, inclusion is being asked to dance, I would say belonging is bringing your own dance and teaching other people your dance and learning other people's dance. I don't like stopping at inclusion because think about the word. It implies that one person is choosing to include another. We all have the equal right to be here, to belong, to belong mm -hmm. in the company, to belong in this conversation, to belong in this meeting, to belong you know, in this community. Mm -hmm. And Ultimately, when we can achieve that, and, and, and again, we're, we're, we're kind of honing here on a little bit of gender and a little bit of sort of this ethnic cultural diversity, but I would also state this for religious diversity. I would also state this for generational diversity, right? By the year 2025, 75% of the workplace will be millennials, right? So we need generational diversity. Mm -hmm. It is truly diversity of all different kinds, diversity of thought, diversity of experience, you know, and if you have a team of millennials, well, for heaven's sake, you know, you want to also have some boomers and Xers and Zers, right? So as much diversity as you can infuse into any system, um, I fundamentally believe, as do many others, the better off you are. But in order to break down those barriers, this is where unconscious bias comes in, right? You've got to be able to peel apart. You got to start with yourself, right? You got to start with the biases that each of us naturally have and be able to increase and expose your vulnerability because unless you can work through them yourself, you, you can't constructively work through them with those teams around you, right, nor right. can you recognize them, right? And yeah, so. Let me ask about equal pay uh, because sure. it kind of dovetails with this conversation. Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff said that in around 2016, his human resources chief told him that the company had a problem with mm. pay disparity. And he even says, I mean, he was on 60 Minutes, was stunning. He said he couldn't believe it because 
he thought his company culture was so woke. You know, we're we're so, you know, Silicon Valley. We're so Palo Alto. You know, we, we're just that way. We're very Californian. I didn't think we had that problem. So they did an audit. And he was shocked to find that throughout every division, women were paid less than their counterparts. So he ended up spending, I think, around $6 million to Mm -hmm. ameliorate the problem, meaning bring all women up to what their counterparts are being paid. Mm -hmm. How do you view equal pay? Yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely paramount. I mean, it is, you know, I, I happen to sit on a public board, as do many of your listeners, no doubt. And look, every organization is all about pay performance, right? It has nothing to do with pay for gender, right? Or pay for the background, it's pay for performance, right? And so I, um, I'm in a huge advocate for, um, you know, for equal pay, equal pay for equal work. I mean, it's such a logical thing. Now, what I would say, Liz, is that why do these things exist, right? So even if you take Mark Benioff's case or any any of the other cases that that uh, you know that we've all read about and heard about, this is where the systemic nature of that bias comes in, right? You know, we're, we're sitting right now at the nexus of three crises in the world. One is the pandemic, of course. The second is the recession, and the third is the systemic racism and social injustice. Mm-hmm. Right? We have never been at this point in our lives, and let's let's hope that we will never be again, that we'll be able to navigate our way out of this. Why does this exist? It's because of those systemic, um, you know, those systemic issues in the decision-making uh, criteria or systems that exist in any organization. But in order to pick that apart and to be able to deconstruct it, uh, to use your words at the front end, to tear that down constructively, mm-hmm. you've got to get people who are looking at it very differently, right? Because those who have been in that system are wedded to that system, whether they know it or not, and it is what they know, right? And this is where bias comes into play many of the times. And I would tell you, this may be a surprise to you, Liz, but most of the bias that I've encountered in my career has not been of malicious intent. It actually hasn't been born in racism or hatred or chauvinism. It has largely been unconscious, right? Somebody calling me oriental and not realizing that that's offensive and went Mm -hmm. out decades ago, right? And rather than react in a way that says, hey, they're coming from a place of malicious intent, I always assume that they're not. And I view those moments as educational moments and teaching moments so that that person can evolve, right? And these are some of the stories that we tell um, in the book as, as well to give people some examples of how to recognize bias in yourself as well as, uh, as well as in others. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in California. Yeah. When I moved to Boston during my career, I was in Columbus, Ohio, then Cleveland. You start in a small market, you work your way up. Then I got to Boston, which is heavily Irish. Somebody said to me, hey, whatever you do, when you're out on the scene reporting live from some arrest, don't use the term paddy wet. Mm. It's very, very uh, insulting to the Irish because I had no idea what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. But Patty, as in Patrick, because, yeah. you know, back in the day, people interpreted Irish people drinking too much and getting thrown into the police wagon being taken away. But I never used it. But once I was educated about it, really understood how hurtful it might be yes, to people. Yeah. But yes. half the time, people don't even know. I'm Jewish. I heard unbelievable things from people. <laughs> and I would say, just so you know, you know, you know they'd say, oh, Jews and money, I, they're, they're, they're typist or whatever. I'd say, my dad's the most generous person I've ever met, mm-hmm. ever. 
Yes. You know, uh, he's got philanthropy. He's got all the, oh, okay, sorry, I didn't know. You know, it's, you don't yeah. take offense immediately, but some of it is so overt. And, and that brings me to this final question. Mm. You know, we are dealing with so much in this country, Anne. We are. What's your message to our listeners here who may have lost their jobs or are feeling so discouraged at this time because they're up against so much, whether it's the pandemic or unconscious bias or outright racism? Yeah, yeah. First of all, what I would say to all of, of all of your listeners here, um, Liz, is, um, you know, is I hope that you're safe and that you're healthy. Um, my message to you is to hope. Each of you were put on this earth for a reason. Each of us, and this really gets to the core of my message around diversity, each of us brings something unique and something very, very special. Each one of us is uniquely different than everyone else. And your life is about that journey of creating that future for yourself. And while today at this moment in time and throughout 2020, we have all been faced with um, so many different challenges you know, there will be a day that we look back on this and say that this was this, what happened here in some ways had to happen to wake us up to the importance of our humanity, to wake us up to the importance of this one single planet we live on, right? To wake us up to a realization that in actuality, we are more connected together and we are better together, which means that it is up to every single one of us and especially of those who fancy themselves as leaders um, to um, reach out, to create cultures of belonging, and to those who may be in despair or are facing barriers that you've never faced before, do not give up hope. Lean on other people. There are so many around this world, around your community, around our country, around every state, every county, um, who want to help, okay? Do not go this alone, right? We are all members of the human race. We are all better together. And with technology today, we can stay connected. We may not be physically connected, which I know we miss like crazy, being able to hug each other um, and you know, kiss each other on the cheek and give a high five. Um, but we can stay socially connected with each other. And so do not stay on your island, whether it's um, you know, emotionally or mentally. Um, there are resources out there to help you and know that each one of you are uniquely, beautifully you, um, and uh, do not give up, all right? Do not give up. Together, we are going to continue to drive and create positive change for our country yeah. and for the world. What a boss you are. I would love to work under you. <laughs> so <laughs> inspirational, Anne. Thank you so much. I really feel like this moment in time has been a salve for people who are aiming for something, who have given up, who are suffering, or who are on their way, and they're just as positive as you are. But this this uh, this technical teardown that we just did, yeah. inside I found the most unbelievable transistors of positivity within you and stick-to-itiveness and persistence. And those are such important ingredients to success. Good luck with the book on unconscious bias. And Chow, the CEO of AT&T Business, you are such an incredible inspiration. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Liz, for having me. And I hope you'll have me every day, you guys, Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Fox Business Network. It's the claim and countdown. We always have a wild market final hour of the day. 
it's like watching a, a soap opera. So come join us. It's it's our business version of General Hospital. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. I will see you next time.